Thanks for joining me. I spoke with Lauren Sheets-Gerald. She's the director and counsel civil justice for ATRA, the American Tort Reform Association. We talked about a couple things. Uh, first off, we spoke about judicial hellholes, where you don't want to be sued. The second thing is what is called the seatbelt gag rule. You know that uh, virtually all states require you to wear a seatbelt, uh, but uh, a number of states say that if somebody sues you, you can't bring up the fact that they were not wearing a seatbelt and how that caused or contributed to their injuries. So uh, Lauren tells us about ATRA's efforts to get that changed. Well, we started by talking about ATRA, the American Tort Reform Association, and getting a little background. ATRA. Can you tell folks a little bit about that? What you do, uh, your mission, and some of the things that you study as part of that? Sure. So the American Tort Reform Association is a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit association uh, dedicated to civil justice reform. Uh, we're the only organization that's strictly focused on civil justice and tort reform in the country. Uh, we have a network of over 40 state uh, groups, coalitions that help us, that we work with on the ground in the different states. And we also have a grassroots network of over 140,000 supporters. We have a very robust legislative program. So we work directly at the state level and some at the federal level to support uh, and enact legislative reforms. And then we also have a robust amicus program. So we file amicus in both state and federal courts supporting either civil justice system or civil justice reforms or um, pushing back against the expansion of liability in some cases, protecting previously enacted reforms. And then we also have our judicial hellholes program, which I think we'll focus a lot on today. And this program shines a a spotlight on the abuses occurring across the country in in judicial hellholes. And we release a large report uh, annually every December that shines a spotlight on the abuses, discusses some of the emerging trends that we're seeing across the country. And it lists out, in most cases, um, anywhere from eight to 10 jurisdictions that we see um, and feel are judicial hellholes. Let's start with uh, how do you define or what do you look for in terms of a judicial hellhole, Lauren? These are places where judges are allowing either novel theories of liability to to be pursued by the plaintiff's attorneys, or they're allowing liability expansion at rapid rates. We see a high rate of uh, nuclear verdicts or excessive verdicts um, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And the the plaintiff's bar is very familiar with these hellholes. They often have low barriers of entry. They have low standards for expert evidence. They allow plaintiffs from all over the country to file. So often venue reform is lacking. Personal jurisdiction decisions um, are very, you know, again, low barriers. So the plaintiff's lawyers flock to these jurisdictions to file their lawsuits. They're known for their high awards and their plaintiff friendly rulings. When you when you put this together or when you make your annual list, uh, how do you go about it? Lauren? What do you look for? What input do you get? What research do you do? Sure. So the Judicial Hellholes program has a blog that is we're continually updating based on cases that we're hearing about um, from either defense attorneys, from uh, ATRA members. 
We survey corporate defense counsel. We survey local firms, discuss what they're seeing on the front lines in these states. We also do a lot. We rely a lot on primary sources. So we have a whole team that is looking at the dockets, looking at verdicts, uh, reading cases from appellate and state Supreme Court. Um, and then we also receive a lot of feedback from the public. This program has become very well known. So there is a way for people to reach out to us and let us know what they're seeing or what they're experiencing firsthand. When I went to your web pages, I recall there, there was like a running list of new events or new factors in that. Is that part of the, the ongoing effort that people can reach to? Yes. Yes. And, you know, we also are seeing emerging trends across the country. Last year, we highlighted a few. Each year in the report, we do these sections called Closer Looks. And these sections examine these either novel theories of liability that are being pursued in judicial hellholes or uh, new, you know, problems that we're hearing a lot about on a national level. Um, Most recently, it's been the expansion of public nuisance law for to cover public health crises. Uh, We've seen it with the opioids, with uh, climate change, PFAS litigation, vaping, and now it's even being extended into the COVID liability space as well. We've also highlighted data breach issues, no injury class actions, and uh, themes like that as well. When does that usually come out each year? It's usually the first or second week of December. This year, it will be Tuesday, December 8th. And we do, you know, robust media out, uh, outreach and rollout of the report, a lot of activity on digital, whether it's uh, Facebook or Twitter, LinkedIn. And then we'll do, um, you know, we'll work with different media outlets across the country to push this out. And for those who uh, uh, want to get right on it or even to check what you have right now, what's your website? It's judi- uh, judicialhellholes.org. And then you can also find it through ATRA's website as well, which is atra.org. Lauren, I think we've kept people waiting long enough. Let's take a look at the 2020 judicial hell holes. And there we go. There we go. <laughs> so this is the 2019-2020 list. Uh, we have several perennial hell holes on there. This was released last December and is what we have been focusing on for this year. Our new list will be released on December 8th. And we did have a few newcomers last year, and including a new number one judicial hellhole, uh, which is, as you can see, the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas. You, you know, I mean, we won the Super Bowl a few years ago. How did Philadelphia get to the top of the list, Lauren? Well, I think that the case that really pushed it over the edge was the $8 billion ver- uh, Risperdal verdict last year. Yes, it was later, uh, you know, it was later lowered dramatically, but that $8 billion verdict really encapsulated all that is going wrong in Philadelphia. They are also the very low barriers of entry. I think most of their cases in the Court of Common Pleas, uh, specifically around their pharmaceutical litigation, 80 so percent of those are out-of-state plaintiffs. So plaintiff's lawyers are flocking to Philadelphia to file these cases. They know that there's the possibility of very high verdicts and plaintiff-friendly rulings throughout litigation. And what we're seeing is the plaintiff's attorneys know that just the sheer volume of cases is what matters because the more cases that they file, the more that are included in these class actions, the, high, the more pressure there is on defendants to settle these cases, which is all they're really looking for. We're seeing a high number, excuse me, um, we're seeing a high 
dollar spend in trial or advertising in Philadelphia and in other judicial hellholes, just with plaintiff's attorneys trying to drum up the business and find more class members to increase that pressure to settle. You know, uh, from the geographical location, while I have cases around the country, from the geographical location where our office is located, we have a a fair number of cases that are filed in Philadelphia, many, if not most of which, um, have no factual connection to Philadelphia. So one of the things we do, uh, Lauren, preemptively is if there's an accident in an outlying county uh, that is uh, less plaintiff friendly than Philadelphia, uh, the Pennsylvania rules are that if we have a basis to do it, if we file suit first, that county decides where the case is going to be. So by preemptive, not only do we get to jump on discovery, do we uh, get to uh, you know proceed on the case ahead of time, but it also gives us a good lead in terms of locking jurisdiction into uh, another county outside of that. Because the motions, as you probably, uh, part of the basis of this, the motions to get out of the county just don't seem to go anywhere. No, they don't. Moving, uh, Lauren, beyond my local pride and being number one, uh, how about the uh, uh, anything else notable in the rest of the list that you'd want to bring to the attention of the folks? I think in California, they are allowing novel theories of liability to be pursued and to advance every week. Um, But unfortunately, what we're seeing is things that happen in California first. They sort of use that as its testing ground, and then they're quick to spread to the rest of the country. So we really look at California as a litmus test to know what's going to be coming down the pipe uh, in the future as far as liability expanding legislation and uh, uh, judicial decisions. New York City, uh, you mentioned your interest in nuclear verdicts. We're really seeing an increase in nuclear verdicts in both New York City and in Georgia. Those um, New York City is more of a recent thing that's going to be highlighted in this year's report. Uh, Georgia, the nuclear verdicts were a real reason that it appeared on this list for the first time in uh, in the state's history of while we've been releasing these hellholes for over 20 years. Um, One thing we're seeing that is contributing to the rise in nuclear verdicts in New York City is improper anchoring, where uh, plaintiff's lawyers are improperly suggesting uh, numbers and dollar amounts that the jury should, should award. And as a result, that's the st- sort of starting point for the jurors when they're deliberating. And New York has always had sort of a de facto cap of $10 million for pain and suffering. Since there's been this increase in improper anchoring, I believe 90% of verdicts have been double that amount. There was a recent study pointing to that and showing that data. So that's a real concern there. And again, in Georgia, we're seeing a high level of nuclear verdict, specifically targeting the trucking industry. I think last year they had the highest verdict ever in the history of the state in the county down there. So it's something we're keeping a very close eye on and tracking through this report. Uh, in terms of trucking, do you know of uh, any other jurisdictions that seem to jump out at you, Lauren, or is it just uh, what you look at is, is part of the entirety? of the whole mix on this? It's part of the entirety uh, of what we're looking at. Georgia, it has been a focus. Uh, South Carolina, we've heard a lot about um, some incidents down there in Texas. Right. But it it seems to be a centerpiece of of Georgia's civil justice abuse right now, as well as Louisiana. You know, you now have that RICO case going down. There was that big scam that was covered last year. Uh, we had followed that closely through hellholes. Again, that was 
uh, centerpiece of Louisiana's hellholes section last year. So we're certainly keeping an eye on that. And we're glad to see that these companies are fighting back against the abuse and um, hopefully taking a stand. And the entire New Jersey legislature makes the list. Uh, how, uh, how did that team effort come about? Well, we must say New Jersey had been a perennial hellhole for several years. Uh, their Supreme Court has made made some good strides. They uh, had some good expert evidence decisions where they kept junk science out of the courts. But it really was the New Jersey legislature that kept enacting these liability expanding bills, looking for new ways to uh, hold companies liable, employers specifically. So we made the judgment that the New Jersey legislature, again, for the first time in the history of the report, the we would specifically target the legislature really? um, on their activity. Yes. Yeah. And just to throw something else in, since I thought of it, which is always dangerous, uh, statement when you were on the receiving end of it, Lauren, for the surprise. Was actually involved in the uh, Louisiana tort reform? We were, yes. Okay. I was hoping I was lobbing one to you. Uh, could, 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 uh, that seemed to be, I don't know much about it, but it seemed to be quite a progress in terms of tort reform and being able to assist in defensive cases. Fair enough? Certainly. I think it was a it was a great win, especially in the 2020 environment. Right. I um, it should go a long way to at least make some progress in the state. It was a bit of a roller coaster ride there between the vetoes and um, all the different bills that were being introduced. I think for us, we were really focused a lot on the seatbelt portion of that bill, the gag order. Um, we have a seatbelt project that we are um, that we focus on and have looked to pass similar bills around the country. So again, that piece of it was important, lowering the jury threshold more in line with what we see in the rest of the country was an important piece. Um, so yes, we were very involved. We also work, uh, we also have the Citizens Against Lawsuit Abuse program, the Kayla program, and we have a presence um, in Louisiana with the Louisiana Lawsuit Abuse Aware, uh, Lawsuit Awareness Group down there. And so yes, the, Louisiana was definitely a bright spot in an otherwise yeah. more quiet year. And how about the Seatbelt Project? Uh, you, you touched on something there. I think it'd be interesting to a lot of folks, particularly in trucking, because of the vehicle accidents there. Uh, maybe if you could uh, go into you know what what you're doing and, and how it's progressing. Thank you. So we have this legislative program for seatbelts, repealing the gag orders in most states. Um, we have been looking to pursue this uh, these bills in many different uh, states across the country for the past few years. Uh, we've looked at West Virginia. Um, Missouri, South Carolina, sev several states to do this because we think it's really important that the juries are aware of all the evidence and are, you know have the opportunity to consider the fact that a, dr a driver or a passenger was not wearing their seatbelt. So we think it should be a common sense reform and we it's one of our main projects right now. Sounds great. I, I ran into that even on a truck loading case where the plaintiff was not wearing a seatbelt, resulting in his death in the rollover, where they tried to apply our Pennsylvania gag rule mm -hmm. on a forklift wow. as opposed to a, a vehicle. So uh, good luck on that. We're, we're rooting for you. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing the information. And uh, we look forward to December 8th. Certainly. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us.
If you like it, subscribe. Check us out next week. Have a good one. Have a safe one. Thanks.